The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. When I was reading this article, though, it, I did laugh because this article does list like all the things that we should assess, like like we said, vision, uh, hand dexterity, functional cognition, and I started laughing because I was like, "Well, we're already doing that. Like, you know, like we're already we're already doing that, and we're trained to kind of th- like think quick on our feet in the sense of they have poor hand dexterity. What can't they do? And then just going down that list of occupations that they have so I think that's very cool about our profession because we see the client holistically and not just poor hand function type thing in part two of medication management Tracy Anna Haley and I take over right where we left off from part one enjoy Sometimes I think people don't want to talk about the reimbursement and the money, but it's not a bad thing. Mm -mm. You know, I mean, it's the way that our economy works. We pay for services with money. If anything, it more supports our role for things with medication management because we are reducing hospitalizations by facilitating adherence. So what is it that we could do as clinicians 
like what would be an action that if somebody was working with someone in skill nursing tomorrow with the in rehab subacute rehab with the intent of that person leaving what is something that they could do with that person under their care and rehab for medication management do you want us to answer that question because i know haley has the answers i do take it away haley do you want me to go into like low tech high tech assistive technology kind of stuff? Is that where we're going with this? I was going to say, can we start with a valley? That's what I was going to say too. (laughs) I don't know if I have research on that. You do. You do have research on that. And I'm going to show you where. It is in the occupational therapies role. Oh, the position paper. This is the Bible where I just found so much gold. Oh, you mean the whole section that says evaluation? That's good. Good thing that I read it. Yeah, darling. That's it. Don't worry. I made my marks. Well, there's a lot to remember, and we're talking about a lot right now. Did you guys happen to look through this list? So, Appendix C examples of tools for assessing medication adherence and medication management. Did you happen to look through this list and pick out some tools that you liked? I can't find Appendix C. There's so many. Oh, here it is. I can honestly tell you, Haley looked up all of the um, assistive technology, but I know from what we had discussed, the pillbox test is on there. Mm -hmm. Some of the self-care stuff. I know Haley found some stuff. Haley, you want to do, can you see appendix C? I don't know what that is. That the, is that table one? Is it the same thing? No. It's on page 19 of the position paper. Oh, I didn't know there was past the sources. Oh, okay. I didn't go too much into like evaluation and occupation-based evaluations, though it is important. It is important. I looked up one and I'm going to tell you why. First, the name caught my attention. And then I saw the first name of the author. And it was a person that I had actually spoken to one year, a long time ago at the AOTA conference. And I'm like, wait, what has she done here? And it's the ManageMed screening. It's a very simple. Dr. Robnett. Yes. Yes. That's one that um, we utilize at the hospital. You and do? it's also one of, yes, it is also one that we have included in one of our courses at school. Well, I really like this. It's very well laid out. It's a very simple strategy to use to, to get some insight into the person's abilities. And they've even included a section on insight. So to determine if the patient understands why they might need to take certain medications the safety around medications also. So I just, I thought it was kind of a, a nice screen and you can put it together with uh, items that you just buy in the store. So it's not pricey. Whereas I, I looked up the cognitive performance test. That's $738. The CPT has its benefits. I'll be very honest with you. Mm -hmm. The score on the CPT is actually an Allen cognitive level. So it's really pertinent to be utilizing it with individuals with dementia. So the CPT, I I think if you have a patient population with dementia in your center, that would be one, especially with the higher 
level abilities still intact, that is one that you could utilize. So that would be worth the investment. It would be worth the investment. From a a screen perspective, I want to give a plug out to the pillbox test. Okay. To be very honest, because it is very easy to put together. And it is very simple for something like if you're working in acute care, if you are trying to tease out, is it something that you think they could do? You could have them do the pillbox test, which is basically just having them complete a pre-fill based on several medications, Bob, you know, with the instructions on the bottle. With my field works, I did not have the um, ability to do any of these evaluations, but in school, we did the pillbox test and we practiced it and practiced administering it. And it hits everything. It hits vision. Can they see the pills? Can they read the labels? Hand dexterity, grip, pinch, swallow. Like it, it does a lot more than just the cognitive aspect of can they organize it and then take the meds. And that's what I wanted you guys to really hit on is all the areas for medication adherence that we already assess in our evaluations every day. So it's really, if you want to use it as a screen, you think somebody may have a visual impairment, that's probably going to be something that we're going to have to, with our client adapt for. Is there a coordination issue? That's definitely something. I mean, there's a myriad of low-tech options out there for individuals who have difficulties with hand strength, in-hand manipulation, pinch. I mean, I could, obviously we could all go on, but it's something that speaking up and, and not letting it be another professional's area when really it is our area. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to kind of circle back around and make sure that we cover all of the different areas that we look at as occupational therapy practitioners. So we look at the person, but we also look at the environment, the context that Mm -hmm. these activities are occurring in. And we're able to break the task down. We're able to identify where a barrier might be and then work with the person and the caregiver everyone involved in that person's life to help overcome those barriers in a way that is meaningful to them, like you were saying, Haley. And I also wanted to add that sometimes that vision component is there and people may mistake the person having a cognitive deficit when really there is a vision or visual perceptual problem going on. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. And that definitely speaks to our focus on this. It sure does. Podcast. It does. <laughs> when I was reading this article, though, it, I did laugh because this article does list like all the things that we should assess. Like, like we said, vision, uh, hand dexterity, functional cognition. And I started laughing because I was like, well, we're already doing that. Like, you know, like we're already... We're already doing that and we're trained to kind of th- like think quick on our feet in the sense of they have poor hand dexterity what can't they do and then just going down that list of occupations that they have so i think that's very cool about our profession because we see the client holistically and not just poor hand function type thing that's why i was discussing the occupation of health management because medication management is just one component of that. 
But again, ultimately, it comes down to, you know, obviously maintaining individuals in their home. Or their highest level of independence. Mm -hmm. Or what they identify as home. Yes. So not requiring a higher level of care. So we've talked about some of the deficits that we can pull out. Should we now talk about how to address those problems? Because not everything that we do is going to be rehabilitative, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to think how to start this. Anywhere you want. I guess I'll start with some, I think, common things that most practitioners probably think of when they think of medication management, but can be very beneficial to clients if it's where they want to be. So the first one being a pillbox organizer, as simple and mundane as that may be, that organizational aspect of being able to separate medications daily. They have AM, PM sections. You can go monthly if they only have access to somebody to fill their pillbox planner once a month you have the ability to maybe get a smaller one. If that's too overwhelming, you can simplify the task down to a weekly one. There's ways to adapt them visually, high contrast, bold lettering, large lettering. They make all different types of pillbox organizers, which I think is super cool. When you say high contrast, can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I was looking at different pillboxes online and a lot of them have small, maybe blue and like white font or blue and black font, but like a bright color, like a green or a yellow with black font on it, that, that black M or maybe even the whole word Monday might be able to help people identify better what day of the week it is and what day they should be taking the pills at. Especially if a person has a visual field cut, we can teach them to look for the whole pillbox setup. Or if a person has macular degeneration or glaucoma on top of what has happened with the stroke, because that's another thing that we understand is that people sometimes have pre-existing conditions going on within their bodies when they have a stroke. Adds to that caregiver overload that we spoke about. Yes. Earlier. Yeah, it does. I love, um, Haley, you're talking about the simple things like the pillbox. I'm going to say something even more simple. What were they already doing in their routine? Because I often found that well-meaning caregivers would implement a pillbox and, and their loved one had no idea what they were doing. And not only did they implement the pillbox, but they put it in a room that they didn't identify as a room where they take their medicines in. So before they started, so you were talking about it being context specific. I often identified what they used to do and see if what they used to do can still work for them. And if it couldn't, I tried to do the, the a very, any modifications that I made, I tried to stick as close to their normal routine because oftentimes we were dealing with individuals with mild cognitive impairment or a, 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 a relatively new neurologic event. So trying to have them tap into what they used to use that was successful instead of trying to start something all new. I think too, to play into that, it's important to kind of go back into medication adherence. If they had a routine that wasn't working, maybe 
putting it in places and creating a new habit that they will remember? Did they always keep their medications by the bedside and hope they would remember to take them when they first get up? Why don't we try putting it next to your toothbrush in the bathroom? Cause you always brush your teeth first thing in the morning. I think it's important to, to look at past experience. Like you were saying, Tracy, and if it worked, keep it the same, but if it didn't work, how can we then modify or adapt it now to become a new habit and make it very strength based. So mm-hmm. what is it that that individual feels comfortable and confident doing on something that they feel as though that they have the skills and ability to do so? Many times I tried to implement pillbox and people didn't want pillboxes because that's not how people take medicines. I want to continue to take them out of my my bottle from the from the pharmacy. So then that's another whole shift into, you know, options for obviously manipulation, vision, what was going on? Is it something that we can work with the pharmacy that can get them something that they can be successful in the routine that they choose? So before we move on with this whole scenario that you just laid out, I envisioned the person who's a little bit older and the children have moved away, and someone has come back home to help during this event. And they whisk in the house, and they want to quickly change everything because that's how they would do it. And that right there can really impede someone's success. And it's a well-meaning family member. No one is doing this to cause harm. It just makes logical sense in their mind. And again, this is where the professional lens comes into play, like understanding that you can't disrupt this person's routine without working with them to build a new one if they want to, and then playing into the strengths that they have. And I think I'm going to leave it there. I think that, um, no, I'm not going to leave it there. I think that I'll, a lot of people feel helpless when something has happened to a loved one and coming in and making a change makes them feel like they're actually able to help. And it's a sign of love and caring and kindness. It's just not always perceived that way. So family dynamics and the real life situation, because if that person's going to leave and go back home, we really need to be sure that things are set up in such a way that that person who's going to be living home with their new diagnosis is successful. That really comes down to getting to know the individual that we're providing care with. It does. So if we go back to the strengths-based way of helping someone, I like that you're thinking about the bathroom next to the toothbrush and just talking to them and finding out what their routine is in a day because everybody has one and working within that, that can just make a person feel so heard and cared about. And to us, it seems like a simple thing because that's what we've been trained to do but to somebody who can now be successful in their 
desired place to live. That's a big deal. You know, one of the things that, um, so Pete recently passed away. And one of the things that people who write to me tell me is a, it's always about his book and his book laid out solutions in a way that was so understandable. Anybody could understand it. And that really means a lot to people. That's a big deal. That goes with health literacy. I, Tracy, you have taught me to love health literacy. It's so important. And when you simplify things and almost like give real life examples, they feel, patients feel heard. They feel motivated to actually try and do this because there aren't any medical jargon. It's words that they know they understand in terms that they know and they can do. And that's why Mm -hmm. I I love my health literacy. Yeah. So we talked about doing things the way that they've always done them. We talked about pillboxes, making them big enough so that people can see them, making the the print and the contrast of the, the containers, colors and sizes that they can see the words on them. What else do we have? If they don't like a pillbox planner, I found a lot of information on utilizing a medication guide. So creating a sheet, almost like a chart, not necessarily a, you probably could incorporate frequency as well, but what the pill is, what it's for, maybe even a picture of what it looks like. So they know which one, if they forget the names, being able to open the pill ball and be like, I'm looking for the pink oval one and the blue circle one, helping them do that as well. Or there was a lot on adapting the actual pill container. I had seen something say some pharmacies have special labels they can put on to make the font bigger on the bottle itself, or even provide pictures of a sun for morning, something for mid-afternoon, and a moon for at night, and checking off what time of the day they should be taking those. I thought that was really interesting. I think that's important for us to realize, too, being able to interdisciplinary communicate and see what the options are on behalf of our client and talking to other professionals and being like, what I have is not what they want or is not working. Is there anything you can do to help me meet their goals and their needs? I think that's important as well to remember. And being an expert on what's available in the community that you are providing care. Different pharmacies have different programs. Size of pharmacy matters. Some have some of the federal programs, some of them don't. Some co-mingle, some don't. So there's really, and there's others that have different types of bottles. So there's definitely just knowing what's available and what could benefit the needs, the specific needs of your client. So when you mentioned the pictures, I think that's really important for a person who is experiencing cognitive challenges. And if there may be some dementia involved, if you can work with that person to use this new system and to learn it while while they're still able to learn 
something new, they'll be more likely to be able to manage that longer than if you try to introduce something when they're already at that stage where they're not able to take, to learn something new. And I think that that's really important for the caregivers to understand too. And I wanted to bring in something that that article that talked about the caregivers mentioned when people manage medications together, there's less of a perceived burden on the caregiver. So incorporating people like helping them decide together what will work best for both of them. I remember one of my favorite uh, patients in the MRU years ago, he was in the rehab unit. His wife was on a different floor. And I had learned that after working with him for many days. And one of the things that made me the most happiest ever in my career was being able to facilitate him going to visit her because he didn't tell anybody and they, they just missed each other. But he had more physical challenges. His wife had dementia, but between the two of them, they were able to manage at home. And his biggest concern was if something would happen to her. He was so worried about her. And he also was concerned that he wasn't able to help her as much as she was helping him. But between the two of them, they were able to manage. That's so sweet. I know it is. That fact also um, goes back to motivation and motivating the patient and the caregiver because I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking at the stat right here. There was uh, caregivers felt less of an overload when the patient was motivated and engaging in the medical management. That also proves that a type of intervention might not be just one on one with the patient, but maybe like a group session with the caregiver and the patient and treating them both and educating them both and doing almost like a role play in, in situations. So not just focusing treatment on the patient, but their support units as well. Makes me think that this might be something good for a support group mm-hmm. to do, because I know there are many interventions where behavioral behavior change. I mean, when you hear about it in terms of behavior change, it sounds like, oh, you want me to do, you know, become something different, but it's just adopting a new habit based on our understandings of what needs to happen. Groups, when people learn about these things in groups, it's more effective for carryover. And it almost seems like maybe some of the sting of not understanding or some of the sting of these changes that have occurred in their lives that are disrupting their lives is softened by knowing that you're not alone and that others are learning with you. I agree. I feel like it also helps reduce that stigma behind taking medications. I feel like people think, I mean, I am guilty to it too. I don't like to take a medication unless somebody is really forcing me to, because I feel like I'm taking a medication, there's something wrong with me. And I don't want to admit there's something wrong. So I feel like being able to see that in a group setting and see other people who maybe are more open to taking medications and that it's okay to take medications for the benefit of you and the benefit of your health and reducing that stigma is important for them as well. In that supportive setting, 
people are very creative on their own. So if they have, you know, if it's a support group led by someone who is understanding of what we're talking about, routines and habits and, and what's available in the community, people could share what they already use that other people would be like, that's a wonderful idea. Why didn't I think of that? It's so simple. Again, it's coming from that peer. And again, it makes that information easier, easier, sometimes easier to implement because it came from not somebody that was telling them what to do. Someone was sharing, they were in the same situation and this was what they came up with and it was successful. Well, I think that's part of the challenge that as healthcare providers, we need to improve upon being more collaborators rather than this authoritarian figure. Because oftentimes we really don't know more. We just know different. More value to what we do and how we provide care. Yeah. Care with. Care with. I love that. Care with. Mm-hmm. We talked about some of the low yeah, color. We're talking about in that obviously with that goes proper lighting. So task specific lighting. Let's keep going on some of the lower tech, easier type options. There was a lot for fine motor difficulties. I pulled out three. I wish I could show them. Um, ah, the limitations of podcasts. I know there was one really cool one and it's going to sound really silly when I say it out loud, but it was called the perfect opener. It looks like an actual cat, but it's got so many different things because fine motor difficulty is not just limited to opening the cap, pulling out the pill and taking the pill. This thing grips the medicine caps. It can push open the caps that have the arrow aligned heads. You can grab the cotton from the inside with a hook of the cat's tail, that cotton balls on the inside, sometimes of those packed medications. You can pierce the individually wrapped pills if they kind of come oh, in that the foil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point, Haley, because if you get, if you get um, blister packs, let me, let's be honest, blister packs are not easy to open. And if you have any sort of arthritic condition going on, in your digits, it's not easy. No, and they're small. And they're hard plastic. Yeah. Even with the, even, I mean, they have paper on the back. Mm-hmm. I mean, then, and then you got to peel off the paper and then get to the foil. Good night. And then by the time you push the pillow, it's in your hand and on the floor. So what do you do when it's on the floor? Pick it up and take it. I don't know. Maybe get your reacher out. or advise them to always when they're manipulating their medicines use a contrasting color kitchen towel or a regular hand towel so if the pill falls out they have a chance of it being on a terry cloth or something that's not going to bounce onto the floor so do that at the table or the counter I should take that advice. There have been many pills I have lost on my bathroom floor and have had to hands and knees look for it. So I might have to implement that in my life. Might be a good thing for me. There you go. 
my work here is done. Oh, not yet. <laughs> so for another fine motor difficulty, there was something called the, the Tenura bottle opener. I might have butchered that. It kind of looks like a rubber cone in a sense, and it helps you provide a non-slip grip on the top to either hold the medication bottle so you can open it or in reverse, you can hold the medication bottle and pop something open. Dollar store shelf liner, same thing. True. I have to say there is nothing like Dysum. Dollar store shelf liner. Well, as someone who only had use of one hand for a few months, Dysum is the way to go. You can literally put Dysum on the counter, put your water bottle on the counter and open the water bottle with one hand. This I learned after holding it between my legs and ending up with wet pants too many times. Adapt and overcome. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm, I'm a huge proponent of name brand Dysum. And not dollar store shelf liner. Yes. Or the buck and a quarter store. As it's become. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's another one, Haley? I've got, they're kind of like, I would say, mid-tech. I don't know a good term for it. So when you have difficulties remembering to take your medications, I did not know these existed, but they make vibrating alarm pillboxes. I didn't know those existed. And they make timer medicine caps that you can put on the top of your medicine bottles and set a time at and they'll beep. I thought those were super cool. Now, locally, you can get those at Tops Pharmacy. Yep. You can get them at CVS too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know that. Can we talk more about this vibrating thing? Yeah. They have all different types. And I didn't really know how to describe them all they have like four pill component it almost looks like a weekly pill organizer but I'm gonna guess maybe daily if you take four different pills they do have large pill organizers seven days four compartments for each days and they all have either a timer component separately or built into it and you can set times for the sections it'll vibrate it or it'll beep to remind you And what about all the smart home technology where they could implement something like an Alexa, where Alexa can say, it's noon, time for a medicine, to remind them that way. Again, my parents would never let Alexa into their home. But if somebody is more open and and comfortable with that type of technology. Going into a more technological based way to manage medications. I found this really awesome app, free iPhone, Android. It's called Mango Health, M-A-N-G-O Health. And it does so much. Anna can attest to this. I found it the other day and I sat her down and I was just in awe with the things this app can do. If you are tech friendly, So just kind of going off their description for the app, you can set customized pill reminders for medications or supplements. When you go to put in a medication, 
you can type it in. They have hundreds of different types of medications. And then you can not only click the medication, but they have options for whether it is a round pill, an oval pill, a patch, an injection, all different things. You can plug in the color of the medication when you need to take it in frequency. And then you can set up alerts on your phone that'll remind you. It also tells you when you plug in a drug, drug interaction warnings. So possible side effects, potentially dangerous drug interactions with other meds you've plugged into the app already, supplements, or even food. I peeked at this in preparation. And the thing that I loved was it's reward-based setting up habits and routines. Yes. You know what I love? It says, good morning and your name. It gives you a prize on Friday if you do a really good job. What kind of a prize do you get? So you can earn 30 points a day, 10 points you get if you take your medications on time, five points if you meet your caregiver goal for the day. So this can also be used for caregivers in lieu of caregiving. I don't know the right word for that. The person you are taking care of. Care recipient. Care recipient. And then automatically you are entered to win as long as you have opened the app in the past week and you've not already won at your level. Gifts are given every Friday and they can be things like gift cards from your favorite stores or even donations to charity. Wow. So talk about that motivational aspect. Right? It's such a community building too. Oh, we're going back to that support group thing in the community, sense of community. I'm logging in now. I'm so excited. <laughs> you can, if you have an Apple watch, it's right on your watch. And I think that that's nice for, um, so, you know, for the people who do like the technology and they like those watches, it's, it's handy. Mm -hmm. It's not something else that you're carrying around with you. I also really liked how it kind of moved from a medication aspect and also went into healthy habits. So you can track things as mood, your weight, blood pressure, blood glucose, how many steps you're taking a day. And it takes all of this information you log, puts it into a daily health diary. So then you can pull up at your appointments. If you're required to track your blood pressure every day, you can take it to your primary and be like, here you go. This has been my blood pressure for the past two weeks. You don't have to remember it. You don't have health management. <laughs> yes. You know what I love about these charts is that it's, it's easy for our brains to get into that negative spiral that you're not doing enough. We're never doing enough. And a lot of, a lot of advertisement kind of pushes us to make us think that we're not doing enough. But if you actually track what you do and then you see it in a chart form, you can start to change a perception of yourself as being this person who is struggling so much to just to do what needs to be done to this person who's successfully changing habits, roles, and routines. And they don't all need to be changed at once. It's my favorite so far after the Dyson. This app, I found it on accident and I just thought it was so cool. I had to share. It's amazing. I just like, I like the positive, the positive feedback it gives. Mm -hmm. And then there's, and then there's a way to encourage 
communication with the providers. So then it helps to close that loop with the providers. So the providers have evidence that this is what the individual is doing and that they really are taking their weights every day if they have a situation where they should be taking their weights every day. And they are monitoring their sugars. And here is that list. Now, often, I mean, glucose monitoring has come a long way since when I was doing home care. So that's a much easier um, uh, biometric to obtain and and maintain because they have the different monitoring systems now. So that's one's not as much of an issue as it used to be. Might be a little bit of a challenge for a person who has some new onset hemiplegia. Definitely. But like Haley said, that caregiver aspect portion of the app, I mean, I feel like everyone, because we just naturally want to help our loved ones, someone in a family will step up and be their caregiver. And then that app is just very easy to use. I wonder if it also is a way to bring people together to be on the same page with that thing, because everyone involved has something new going on now when there's a health event in someone's life. It'll allow independence with the individual learning to manage their, their health routines now, but then it'll also give their caregivers some peace of mind. So they don't have to contact their care recipient, the person that they're, that they're aiding if they have an app that they can jump on the app too and see, well, we're okay today. Yeah. Like, and then that'll help to, to obviously establish that routine, but it'll also help to step away from that constant, always having to call, always having to be responsible because now that they're seeing that this individual is following through and doing what they need to do, or the individual is good enough to know to fill out the app because there's always that side of it too. Yeah. And then that kind of takes away the, um, like these roles that people tend to adopt more. Uh, You don't need a spouse or a caregiver, a friend to adopt a parent type of role that really doesn't help things. Mm -hmm. But if the person is filling out their app and they're not taking their medicines, that definitely would be intentional then. So at least we know why the non-adherence is occurring. I was going to say, I like how it holds you accountable. It's a tangible thing to see if you're being accountable because I plugged in a random medication one day when I was messing with the app and now I get 8 a.m. reminders to take a medication I don't take. But every morning I see the alert and I'm like, oh man, I got to take my medication. I'm like, oh, that's not mine. But it's, it's nice to have that reminder from an outside party, I guess you can say, rather than somebody being like, here's all your medications take them at these times and you're like, I'm okay. Like I'll just push it to the side. If I don't see it, I forget about it, but this kind of makes you see it. And I like that aspect of it. Me too. And I like the word tangible. So do you have higher tech solutions? That was probably about as high tech as I went. I felt like an app is either you love or you hate nowadays. So there are many high tech options out there. There's pill dispensers. There's the MediCube. That's literally like a month all at once. And it literally spits out what it is that you need. There's hero or halo 
Halo or Hero. Have to edit that, Deb. I don't remember if it's Halo or Hero. Halo, a game. It is, but I think is it it's Halo or Hero. Wait a minute. I'm gonna look it up. Now I'm gonna look because I don't remember what it is. I think it's Hero. Hero pill dispenser. Hero. There's Hero. There's several others. Uh, MediSafe, um, CareZone, Pillsy. There are many out there. I mean, the Medicube, like I said, is really high tech. That's like, it's almost like its own little Pixis. Like you literally can fill up a month's worth of medications and it'll just distribute what you need. But then you still have to make sure that the individual is going over and taking the meds that are there. So there is definitely a level of accountability and establishing that routine and habit that takes that from what Anna was saying way back in the beginning, that repetition to establish. So it does, it will take some oversight either from the team of individuals, if they are in home care, working with them, if they're in assisted living, you know, working with the nursing staff there to, you know, step away from them providing the medication management and working on those types of systems. If that's something that the client has the ability and desire to do. Well, I want to also suggest that some, some people are just very tech savvy and have a strong desire to live independently and they may love something like this. Mm-hmm. So I know my friend, Anne, who has since passed away, but she, she loved stuff like this and she was determined to live on her own and she was determined to keep track of her, her care. So some people that we work with, we we sometimes make assumptions that they're not capable, but they are if they're given the proper tools and technology. And if it's a proper match between their ability levels Mm -hmm. and what's actually out there. So that's meeting the individual where they're at and modifying and accommodating at the level that they can be successful at. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, we as healthcare personnel, we get so excited about all of the possibilities that we want them. We want our people that we're working with to just embrace these along with us. But we need to remember that sometimes they need time to process what's going on with them, time to decide what it is they really need, time to decide what it is they really want. (laughs) And I, I know that I sometimes get very excited and a little impatient and I think now that the older I get and the longer I've been practicing, the more I understand that. But, you know, sometimes we get really excited about stuff. I call it placing seeds. My job is I'm just placing a seed today. Have you thought about this? And then I come back and ask again. I also think it's important that we stress how it's trial and error this whole medication, I mean, pretty much anything uh, when it comes to intervention, it's all trial and error. It's not going to work on the first time. There's other resources out there if this doesn't work. And I think stress, stressing that for patients or caregivers is also very important because many people are in the mindset that if it doesn't work the first time, it's never going to work. But the beauty of our job is that we are trained to adapt and we are trained in all these modifications that, okay, it doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? A quick Google search, a quick check in the textbook. And we're able to, like Tracy said, adapt, 
with the person's skill level. Yes. Is that a good place to end? I think so. I feel like we've come full circle. There is a little something for everyone in this talk that we had, hopefully bringing everybody together to find solutions that work for them and their families, their loved ones. Yeah. Well, this was great. I'm going to say thank you. Awesome. This concludes our student segment with the Deuville University Occupational Therapy students and their professor, Tracy Bentley Root. Let me send a huge shout out of gratitude to Alyssa, Sarah Bataglia, Sarah DeMeo, Morgan Wellenzone, Haley Bjorkman, and Anna Kotansky. You are wonderful. Thank you for advocating in this unique way for stroke recovery. Your advocacy is much needed. And I wish you all the best on your professional journey. Refer to the show notes for relevant links related to the episode, as well as donation links, information on the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, Pete's book and blog, and other great information that we are happy to share with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.